thanks Shelley for reading uh, our passage to us this morning. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm the assistant minister here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. Last week, we started this two-part series in the book of Esther, and I mentioned to you last week that it was my hope that as we looked at this book of Esther, you could recognize God's sovereign hand at work in both the book of Esther and in your life. Life can be hard, it can be really difficult, and pain cannot be avoided. Now, I may not know the specific situations that you are dealing with in your life at the moment, but I know there are people in our church that are waiting for results from medical tests that they have done. I know there are people who are worried about their uh, their job and the meetings that they're going to have this coming week. There are par- parents in our church who are observing their children make poor life decisions that's going to affect the rest of their lives. And some of you here today might be worried about the outcome of the election next week, what it will mean for you and your wages, your job, and even the ability for us to share about Jesus in schools and in our workplace. You may read the letter from Kanishka tomorrow in the church email and wonder, what do I do with that? How do I deal with that situation? And you may have also just had a hard week where life doesn't seem to make sense and you're feeling overwhelmed with life in general. At these points in your life, what do you do? Do you have confidence and turn and trust in God, or do you turn away from him? Well, the book of Esther encourages us to turn to God and to trust in him, to understand God is present in every aspect of our lives. And last week, God's sovereign hand was at work through people and circumstances, in every little detail. And we're going to see the same thing today, God working out his sovereign plan. But today we're going a step further. We are going to see that because God's sovereign plan is at work, no plan can succeed that is against God. If God's sovereign hand is at work, whether we can see it or not, No plan can succeed that is against God. And so the summary of last week, in the first four chapters of Esther, we were introduced to this king, the king of Persia, who is in control of the largest, most powerful, most wealthiest kingdom known in his day. And the kingdom, although it was not as remarkable as it could have been, it was still enticing. It was still appealing and desirable in everything that it had to offer. But we are not to be fooled. It is not what it seems. We're to recognize that this world that we live in, like that of the Persian kingdom, is not what we should strive after. And I read these words from Luke chapter 9, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. And this week, the Jews across the entire kingdom will be asked this same question. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or the whole kingdom and loses or forfeits himself? In the first four chapters, we're also introduced to Esther and her uncle Mordecai. Esther becomes queen and is told not to make known to anyone the fact that she is a Jew. Mordecai is actually known as a Jew. And we read that he was a descendant of King Saul, and we're also introduced to Haman. And we also read that Haman was an enemy of the Jews. He is a descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And we saw that there was this ancient rivalry that was being played out between these two people, Mordecai and Haman. And so far, Haman is winning. Haman has written this edict that has gone out proclaiming that, that the Jews should be destroyed, they should be killed, they should be annihilated, all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And this edict was sent out to the 127 provinces in the kingdom. But Mordecai calls on Esther to mediate for her people, for the people of God. And let's read the end of chapter 4, starting with verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, in our reading this morning, Esther goes to the king. Please pray with me before we look at chapters 5 to 10 in Esther. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your written word so that we may learn more about you. Help us through your Holy Spirit to embrace and hold fast to the promises found in your word, the promises of hope and everlasting life found through Jesus Christ our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought when we jumped into these five chapters from Esther chapter 5 to 10, I would give you a quick basic picture of what happens, an image that hopefully will stick in your mind. Esther 5 to 10 starts with a few days at the beginning, and then there's a year followed by another few days at the end. So keep that in mind as we're looking at this. There is a significant event over a few days, followed by about a year, then another significant event towards the end. The passage read for us today is at the beginning of this first few days as Esther goes to the king and mediates for the people of God. She confidently approaches the king, and the king offers her up to half of his kingdom. 
Now, if you are wondering, if you ever find yourself in the Persian kingdom and the Persian king offers you up to half his kingdom, he's not really offering you up to half his kingdom. I do not suggest you go to him and say, you're uh, ruling over 127 provinces, I will take 63 of them, thank you. That's not what he's doing here, and I don't recommend that you do that. But what he is doing is he's offering an opportunity. He's offering an opportunity to Esther to use his resources to determine how his authority, his power, his wealth are to be used. And Esther confidently takes advantage of this situation. And he invites the king and Haman to a feast. And then after the first feast, she invites them again to a second feast the next day. And read again with me what happens to Haman after the first feast, starting at chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that neither he rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Haman is happy one minute and then filled with wrath the next. And he goes home and he whinges to his wife. Now, Ella says that I am a great whinger. She even calls it by name. She calls them old man rants. And I don't know about you, but I can have an old man rant about pretty much anything. You give me a topic and I'll have an old man about it. And Haman does exactly the same thing. He has an old man rant to his wife and his friends. And they come up with this great idea of building gallows. Let's read it again in chapter 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. I think it should say that his wife told him to be quiet, build the gallows, and stop whinging. And so that's what he did. He stopped whinging, and he built the gallows. And now Haman is on top of the world again. And we get to chapter 6, where we see that the king is not able to sleep. And he reads the book of memorable deeds, and he reads about how Mordecai saved his life, and nothing was done for him. Now, you might remember, we read about this last week at the end of chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Haman was promoted, not Mordecai. And what we find is, just like Haman's roll of the dice last week, the king's sleepless night although it just seems to be a coincidence, is God's sovereign hand at work. And when we see God's sovereign hand at work, we are to realize that no plan can succeed that is against God. And that's what we read about the first thing in the morning when Haman enters the king's court. We have this unexpected scene whereby Haman thinks the king wants to honor him But it is really Mordecai who is to be honored. And I think we should be cheering for poor Mordecai 
who is now honored in chapter 6, verse 10. Let's read it again. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, Haman, after honoring Mordecai, hurries home with his head covered and has another old man rant to his wife. And I think it would be fair to say that this second old man rant would have been far worse than the first one, probably even worse than my best. But did you notice what was astonishing was the fact that what his wife says in verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. What an astonishing thing to say. At this time, there is still an edict that's gone out with the king's authority ordering the annihilation of the Jewish people. And just that morning, Haman had had a gallows built to kill, to hang Mordecai on. But his wife reads the room differently. It's as if she knows the outcome. Anyone who plans to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, to annihilate God's people will surely fall. If God's sovereign hand is at work in God's people, the Jews, then no plan can succeed that is against God. And I think this is a challenge for us as well. We need to reflect on this for a moment. What will happen to those who are against God and his people? What will happen to those that you know who are against God and his people? Haman's wife, Zeresh, tells her husband the blunt truth about his fate. And as we read on in chapter 7, chapter 7 begins with Haman being rushed to a second feast that Esther prepared. And at this feast, Queen Esther explains to the king that her people are to be destroyed. And we're going to read it again in chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked man, Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
And when the king hears about this, he's furious at Haman, and he goes off into the palace garden. And we get this bizarre situation where Haman stays behind and begs for his life, begs for his life with Queen Esther. And there's something about the way that Haman falls and begs for his life. At just that moment, the king comes in, and the king sees what's happening, and the king thinks that Haman is assaulting her. And the king says, will you even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And it just happens that one of the eunuchs who knows what's going on points out that there's a gallows that have just been built that morning for Mordecai, the one who has saved the king. And so the king says, let's hang him on it. And so in chapter 7, verse 10, it says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. What a bizarre turn of events. Haman is dead. The king gives Queen Esther the house of Haman, and Mordecai is actually put in charge of Haman's entire household. What a bizarre turn of events. Now, what is really interesting is that in these few days we have just witnessed a change in power, a reversal, a turning upside down of who is in power at the center of this great kingdom. Haman is out and Mordecai is in. The signet ring that was given to Haman is now given to Mordecai. And Esther has mediated for her people. A reversal has also happened with Mordecai, who was, an, who was unrecognized as doing the right thing, now being recognized and honored. Mordecai has been vindicated. And these two people, in these two people, Esther and Mordecai, who are at the center of this great kingdom, they both foreshadow different aspects of the one who is at the center of the entire universe. Esther mediates for God's people, foreshadows how Jesus mediates for us. And Mordecai, the unrecognized righteous man, foreshadows Jesus, who was the one and only true righteous man, who was unrecognized for who he was when he was here on earth. But he was vindicated in his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. In these two days, these few days, there has been a change of power in the center of the kingdom. But the implications have not been seen throughout the entire kingdom. There is still Haman's edict that has gone out to the 127 provinces of the Persian kingdom. And we are told that Haman's edict cannot be revoked. And so what do they do? They send out another edict. And let's read about this edict, starting in chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he wrote, that is Mordecai wrote, in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses 
that were used in the king's service, bread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, the children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. On the same day as the edict that Haman sent out, this edict by Mordecai allowed God's people to defend themselves from those who come against them. And these two edicts force people to make a choice. The consequences of choosing the wrong edict would lead to death. And look how the people responded in chapter 8, verse 17. Would you read chapter 8, verse 17 with me? This one verse describes what happened for an entire year in the Persian kingdom. And I think that we need to read this verse very carefully. Chapter 8, verse 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many people, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. For the Jews, there was gladness and joy, and they celebrated. It was as if they knew the outcome. Anyone who plans to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, God's people will surely fall. If God's sovereign hand is at work in his chosen people, the Jews, then no plan can succeed that is against God. And for the rest of the Persian kingdom, did you read what happens to them? God made himself known. God uses these two edicts to work in people's hearts, to change people, to bring them into a covenant relationship with him. I don't know if you noticed that. Many declared themselves Jews. And I actually think this is one of the most astounding parts of the entire story. We read in this one verse how God uses an entire year to bring people to himself. This is the point in the story where God's people believe in him. And do not forget Jesus' words in Luke 15, verse 10, where he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here in Esther, it does not say one. It says many declared themselves to be Jews. And after this one year, 
we see a significant event occur. The second significant event is in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And as we continue to read through chapter 9, we get more detail about what happened in the capital city, in Susa, the citadel, where on this one day, 500 men came against the Jews and were killed. And let's pick up the story in 9.13. And Esther says in chapter 9, verse 13, And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Esther's request was that the Jews have a second day, and they did have a second day, and they killed another 300. But at the end of verse 15, it says, they did not lay hands on on the plunder. And it's actually repeated in verse 16. Read with me verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But lay, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Why is that? What is going on here? The edict said that they were able to lay hands on the plunder, but they did not. Why didn't they? Well, if you remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, when the Israelites go out to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, they were commanded by God not to take their plunder. But they did. And as a result their king, Saul, was rejected as their king. And the Jews in Esther's day knew that story. And they knew that this time it wasn't worth it. And so they got it right. They understood that God was judging those people who were against him. They saw God's sovereign plan at work and understood that there was no plan that could succeed that is against God. The Jews, not interested in the goods, not interested in what they could gain, realized that the kingdom in all its worth is not what it seems. And even though it would have been desirable for them to take everything that the kingdom had to offer, they were not going to be fooled a second time. For what would it profit them if they gained the whole kingdom but lost or forfeited themselves. And we need to ask ourselves the same question. What does it profit you? What do you profit if you gain the whole world and lose or forfeit yourself?
the Jews understood that this was to be a day not for them to profit from the kingdom, but a day when they were rescued from the kingdom. And so these final few days become days to remember, days of feasting and days of gladness. And you can read more about them in chapter 9. And we have the Feast of Purim that they begin to celebrate. And the Feast of Purim comes from the word pur, which means lots. Haman cast lots. He rolled the dice to determine the day when God's people would not be destroyed, but when God's people would be rescued from their enemies. A roll of the dice gives the Jews time to defend themselves and gives the entire Persian kingdom a year to come into relationship with God. A king that can't sleep on one particular night allows a reversal to occur, exonerating Mordecai and leading Haman to his downfall. God's sovereign plan is at work, and no plan against God can succeed. And at the end, Mordecai and Esther encouraged these days to be remembered throughout every generation, and it is right for us to remember times when God rescued his people. Time and time again, it happens in the Old Testament. And we should remember them because they foreshadow Jesus Christ, who came to rescue us once and for all. We are to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus every time we share in communion together. And we are going to do that this morning. Friends, we are meant to remember Christ's death and resurrection, this glorious event, and look forward to the next glorious event when he will come and we will celebrate with him in all his splendor. But do not forget where we are now in these years in between these two glorious events where God is making himself known. We know the outcome. God's sovereign plan is at work, and no plan can succeed that is against God. And so when you leave here today, when you go out into this week, when you're waiting for those medical tests or preparing for that meeting that you are dreading, be confident that even in the smallest of details, God is in control. And no plan against God can succeed. And when your life just doesn't seem to make sense and you are feeling overwhelmed with your life just in general and you feel it's hard to stand up for what you believe, remember that God's hidden hand is at work and no plan against God can succeed. Friends, remember that you are not alone. He will carry you through these years and trust in him. Well, you might like to ask a question or two using slido.com and the hashtag HBSP. I'll give you a few minutes and then I'll uh, 
answer a few of those questions. Thank you. questions there. The first one, are the book of the Chronicles in chapter 6 what we have in the Bible 1 and 2 Chronicles? No, they are not. Um, just like we have the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles in um, the Bible, uh, the, uh, what the king reads is the Persian Chronicles, which um, he also calls the book of memorable deeds. And these would have basically been uh, what the good things the king would have done in the Persian kingdom. And so it's kind of like reading your own sort of bedtime story about your life and how good you are. Um, but it's not the chronicles that we have in the Bible. Um, are there some practical things that we can do to remind ourselves that God is at work when his hand is hidden? Um, I'm sure there are. There's a lot of practical things we can do. Uh, and um, one of the things that we always sort of encourage people to do here is to meet together um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis and read the Bible together. Uh, and I just want to suggest that that might be uh, one practical way that you can consistently read the Bible with another person who will encourage you and help you see where God's hand is at work in your life and throughout the world. So I would suggest you did that. Uh, Esther reads a lot like a fairy tale. Why do you think this is? I think it's read a lot like a fairy tale because the author um, wanted to write it, well, not as a fairy tale, it's actually a true story, but wanted to write it and used um, things that I am not great with, which is literary genres and and things like that, it was written um, to interest us and also written to tell us this story. Um, and uh, like a fairy tale, it um, is written. So it's, I read somewhere that uh, it's quite interesting that it comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, God's hand and God's work is just on almost every Every second sentence is, God does this, God does that, God does that. And Esther, God is not mentioned. Um, and I think it's done on purpose. Um, and it's made us think and consider where God is in the book of Esther. Um, and uh, so I think there's quite a lot of parts of the Bible that are um, written in similar ways. But um, I think it's written like this for us, to interest us, and to make us consider where God is. 
I'm going to leave it there, and I'm actually going to move over to the piano. Uh, would you please stand with me? <laughs> 